0: Welcome to Words of the Wise, an introduction to the Book of Proverbs by Dr. Jacques B. Ducan. Edited for audio by the Ambassador Group. Exploration 3 A Matter of Life and Death. Two brothers were left home alone, but given a strict warning by their mother not to eat the cake that she had just baked. To make sure that the boys would obey, she added the threat of punishment. When she left, it took the boys only a few minutes to decide to eat the cake anyway. This is not a matter of life and death, they reasoned. Our mother would never kill us. So let's eat it. For the teacher in Proverbs, though, the issue he speaks about is indeed a matter of life and death. His language is strong and sometimes graphic. Of course, Jesus used very strong language himself when talking about matters of eternal life and death. Listen to this example in Matthew 5, verses 21 through 30. Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, That whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in the danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly, Whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Jesus used strong language, and no wonder, in the end, our ultimate destiny, our eternal destiny, and what could be more important than that, rests upon the choices that we make here now. So we should take the urgency of the strong language at face value. The Law in Our Life Let me read two verses for you. Proverbs 6, verse 21, and Proverbs 7, verse 3. Bind them continually upon thine heart, and tie them about thy neck. Verse 3 says, Bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thine heart. How do you understand the bodily images used in these texts regarding how we should relate to God's law? Binding or tying God's law to our heart our neck and fingers—it's part of us wherever we go. As we have already learned in Proverbs, the heart represents the seat of emotions and thoughts. By telling us to bind the law upon our hearts, Proverbs six verse twenty-one, the teacher means that we should always be in close connection with the law. There is no moment we may lose contact with the law, because the law is what defines sin. According to Romans seven verse seven, the teacher in the book of Proverbs also insists that this law should be even written on the tablets of the heart. Proverbs seven verse three, just as the Decalogue was written by God on the stone tablets, Exodus twenty four verse twelve. To speak about the law written on the heart means that the law is not just an external set of rules imposed on us. The law should penetrate our motivations. Our secret intentions and so be part of our intimate self. it's another expression of having the Pauline promise found in Colossians one verse twenty seven of Christ in you, the hope of glory be a reality in our lives to tie the law around the neck also means that we should keep it close to ourselves. Ancient people used to tie their precious belongings around their necks. the neck is a place through which air travels to the lungs allowing breath and life, an association of thoughts that is attested in the Hebrew word nefesh, which means soul, which refers to life, and is derived from a word meaning throat and breathing. To bind the law on one's fingers means to bring the law into the domain of actions. The teacher focuses on the fingers to suggest the most delicate and intimate actions. The law should affect not only the grand choices we make, but the smaller ones as well, as Luke 16 verse 10 tells us that Jesus said, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Although the biblical intention of these images was purely symbolical, it is noteworthy that these symbols have been taken literally in Jewish christian and muslim traditions it is seen through the use of the jewish tefillin around the head and the fingers the christian crosses around the neck and the muslim as well as some christians tie rosaries around the fingers symbols can be helpful but let's be careful not to mistake the symbol for the reality it represents Lights and life. Proverbs 6 verse 23 says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. According to that verse, how is the law related to light? Could we say that the commandment, law, and reproofs reveal the way to live? In the Bible, the word of God, or His law, has been compared to light. Psalms 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. In the Hebrew mind, there is a connection between the idea of law and of light. Just as the lamp illuminates the path where we walk, the law will help us stay on track. That is to say, when we face moral choices, it will help us to know what the right choice is, even if at times reason or personal expedience would tempt us to disregard the law. Here's a challenge for you. What examples can you find in the Bible of those who chose to follow God's law despite powerful reasons not to? Now that you have those examples in mind, let's go one step further what can you learn from their obedience? In what cases, if any, did their choice to be faithful seem to be the wrong one, at least from a human perspective? We talked about Proverbs 6, verse 23, which again tells of the values of the law in your life. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Let's add to that. Proverbs 7, verse 2, which says, Keep my commandments, and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. Now, let's ask the same question. Why is the law related to life? Would you agree that God's law helps us to really live? Since the fall of humankind, our hope for eternal life cannot be found in the law, but only through faith in Christ, However, having acknowledged that, we must also acknowledge that obedience to the law and the principles it represents continues to play a central part in the life of faith. Matthew chapter 19 verse 17 And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Revelation 14:12 Here is the patience of the saints here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus We obey because as the Lord said to Israel thousands of years ago I am the Lord your God the law of God is related to life simply because of who God is the source of our life this principle represents true spirituality in other words We trust God and His promises for our present life, just as we trust His promises for eternal life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John 8, verse 12, New King James Version. Friend, how have you experienced the reality of this promise in your daily walk with the Lord? Is it your secret, or have you shared your experience? Fighting Temptation As we have heard, the author of Proverbs 6, verse 23, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, directly links light and life to God's law. In the next verse, he gives a solid example of how the law, as light and life, can offer us powerful spiritual protection. Listen to Proverbs 6, verse 24. To keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. What are we being warned about? Besides that, what is another subtle warning given? When a religious person is tempted, the greatest temptation is to find a religious reason to justify the iniquity. Using God to rationalize bad behavior is not only a terrible form of blasphemy, it's powerfully deceptive. After all, if someone thinks that God is with me, then what can we say in reply? This can happen even in cases of adultery. They might say, God has shown me that this man or woman is the one I should be with. If that's what they believe, who or what can trump what God has shown them? Notice, too, it's not just her physical beauty that lures him. She uses language, flattering words, to draw the victim into her trap. How often have men and women been led into compromising situations by subtle and seductive words, sometimes even couched in religious language? The author of the book of Proverbs seeks to warn us against this deception. The law is a perfect antidote against the flattering tongue of a seductress. Only the imperative of the law and the duty of obedience will help us resist her alluring words, which can sound so true and beautiful. Indeed, the seductress will find you not only handsome, but also wise and bright. She may even evoke her spiritual needs, and ironically, dangerously, the love of God might become the justification for sin. Just think how easily we can be led, even under the guise of faith, to justify wrong actions of any kind, not just adultery. Why, then, is an absolute commitment to the law of God our only real protection against even our own minds and the tricks that they can play on us? You shall not steal. Right after his warning about adultery, in Proverbs 6, verses 24 through 29, in verses 30 and 31, the author starts talking about another sin, stealing. He says, Men do not despise a thief, if he steals to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house." Now that you've heard what Proverbs 6, verses 30 and 31 say, what are these verses saying about what even a desperate person does? At first, doesn't it sound like that hungry thief gets away with this act of thievery? It does seem to sound that way, but then verse 31 instructs the thief to return seven times the amount of what he stole, so the thief's payback doesn't sound optional nor negotiable. The relationship between the two commandments, stealing and adultery, shows how disobedience to one commandment can affect our obedience to the others. The attitude of compromise, to pick and choose in regard to God's law, could be even more dangerous than complete disobedience to the law. Ellen G. White, in her book entitled Education, on page 150, writes... The strongest bulwark of vice in our world is not the iniquitous life of the abandoned sinner or the degraded outcast. It is that life which otherwise appears virtuous, honorable, and noble, but in which one sin is fostered, one vice indulged. He who, endowed with high conceptions of life and truth and honor, does yet willfully transgress one precept of God's holy law has perverted his noble gifts into a lure to sin. Poverty and needs do not justify stealing. The thief is guilty even if he is starving. Verse 30, New King James Version. Although the starving thief is not to be despised, he must still restore seven times what he has stolen. This shows that even the desperateness of his situation does not justify sin. On the other hand, The Bible insists that it is our duty to meet the needs of the poor, so that they don't feel compelled to steal in order to survive. For example, Deuteronomy 15 verses 7 and 8 say, If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in thy land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thy heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. But thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. How interesting that after going from adultery to stealing, the text now returns to adultery in Proverbs 6, verses 32 through 35. Listen. But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get and his reproach shall not be wiped away. For jealousy is the rage of a man, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. Neither will he rest content, though thou givest many gifts. The two sins are indeed somewhat similar. In both cases, someone is illicitly taking something that belongs to someone else. A crucial difference, however, between stealing and adultery lies in the fact that the former sin concerns only the loss of an object, while the latter deals with something much greater. In some cases, one can make restitution for stealing an object. In the cases of adultery, especially when children are involved, the damage can be much more severe than when stealing is involved. On page 308, in her book entitled, Patriarchs and Prophets, Ellen G. White writes, Thou shalt not commit adultery. This commandment forbids not only acts of impurity, but sensual thoughts and desires, or any practice that tends to excite them. Christ, who taught the far-reaching obligation of the law of God, declared the evil thought or look to be as truly sin as is the unlawful deed. The Threat of Death Most people don't think of death when they sin. They have other things on their minds, usually the immediate gratification and pleasure that they derive from their sin. It doesn't help, either, that popular culture often extols adultery and other iniquities. In contrast, the book of Proverbs places sin in the right perspective, a view echoed many years later by Paul in his letter to the Christians in Rome. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, verse 23. Here's a question that our next verse will answer What makes the adulterer vulnerable to the threat of death? Let's discover the answer in Proverbs 7, verses 22 and 23, New King James Version. Verse 22. He goeth after her straight away, as an ox goeth to the slaughter. Or as a fool to the correction of the stocks. Verse 23 Till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hasteth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. The one who goes after her is described as someone who has lost his personality and will. He is no longer thinking. The word immediately suggests that he does not give himself time for much reflection. He is compared to an ox who goes to the slaughter, to a fool who goes to the correction of stocks, and to a bird who hastens to the snare, none of them realize that their life is threatened. Question. What makes the immoral woman lethal? We find the answer in Proverbs 7, verse 26 and 27. Verse 26. For she hath cast down many wounded, Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Verse 27 Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. It's possible that the woman here depicts more than a mere adulterer. In fact, she represents values opposite to wisdom. Solomon uses this metaphor to warn his pupil against any form of evil. The risk is huge. For this woman does not just wound, she kills, and her power is such that she has slain even the strongest of men. In other words, others before you, stronger than you, have not been able to survive in her hands. The universal language of this passage clearly suggests that the biblical author is speaking about humankind in general. The Hebrew word Sheol in the text has nothing to do with hell as commonly thought. It designates the place where the dead now are, the grave. In the end, the point is that sin, whether adultery or something else, leads to annihilation, the opposite of the eternal life that God wants us all to have through Jesus Christ. No wonder, as we said at the beginning, the language is strong. We are dealing literally with matters of life and death. Friend- Let's take a few moments for some honest introspection between you and God. Think of some strong people who have fallen in a big way. Why should this make you tremble for yourself? Honestly, only you know in your heart. What is your only protection? The ambassador group let's continue exploring here are a few questions for you the first question will be based on listening to exodus 20 verses 1 through 17. contemplate what you are hearing and then explain your answer to this question how are all the ten commandments related to each other we find god's ten commandments in exodus chapter 20 Verses 1 through 17. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Verse 8 says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. That thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Verse 17 says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Again, the question is, how are all the Ten Commandments related to each other? Aren't they all boundaries set by God? And here's one more question. If a person openly violates one commandment, do you think that they are likely to transgress other commandments as well? Perhaps it might be the case that, if they don't respect one of God's boundaries, why would they respect and obey any others? So, what do we take away from this exploration of Proverbs? Could we say that our relationship with God is a matter of life and death? Could we also say our relationships with each other are a matter of life and death? Let's pray. Dear Lord, By your grace, I see the wisdom in your commandments. I need to realign my life with your boundaries. Please work in me. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, Amen. ambassadorgroup.org This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.